Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax regulations to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in PwC's Policy on Demand studio in Washington, D.C., where I'm excited to have Rebecca Lee back on the podcast. Rebecca is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office, specializing in financial transactions and digital assets. Rebecca, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. So, Rebecca... This is your seventh time on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. I think this is episode 140, believe it or not. I truly enjoy having you on, maybe even more so than Pat Brown. But I want to know, have you gotten any feedback from clients or colleagues regarding your numerous appearances on the podcast? My children say I look better on YouTube than in real life. So there's that. Nice. And we now have in the DC studio, for those that are watching on YouTube or listening, I would encourage you to check on the YouTube. We now have a new cross-border tax talks fancy set here, which I'm pretty excited about. That only took four years, but uh, um, we did have a change in studio and office. I made it myself, actually. I was coloring in the board. we, We made it just for you. All right, so last time you were on, Rebecca, it was really one of my favorite podcasts where we talked about um, the taxation of foreign exchange gain or loss, and we challenged each other not to use a code section. I I will point out that I think I won, but I will also point out that I think I spoke about 10% of the words on the overall podcast. You were (laughs) were at about the three-minute mark before you actually used a code section where I buzzed you. Um, But it was a lot of fun, and I think you did an outstanding job really breaking down foreign exchange gain or losses from a U.S. tax perspective without using code sections. But... Today, we're here to talk about one code section, and that is section 987. So let's start off with what is code section 987? And this goes back, I think, to back to 86 when it came into law. So 987, which are our branch foreign currency rules, was part of a package of regulations that were intended to harmonize the treatment of foreign currency items, kind of create a holistic version of how do we create a tax account for foreign currency gains. And so 987 is relatively simple. It says, if you have branch operations, which refers to something that is owned by the taxpayer that operates in its own functional currency, keeps its own books and records in that functional currency, you have to account for the translational gain or loss for the differences between the foreign currency rate at the home office, at the owner, and in the branch. And they tell you you have to translate your items of income deduction gain or loss at some kind of rate, the average rate for the year, and that you have to make appropriate adjustments for the assets, liabilities, balance sheet items, other aspects of the branch transactions, and that the timing for accounting for the gain or loss is when there are remittances from the branch. And that's what we know from the statute. It's like three sentences long, and this has given sort of life to hundreds of pages of regulation to try to interpret those three sentences. And we're gonna talk about a little bit of the history of those, but before we do that, you mentioned branches. 
And so I think the, the technical term is a qualified business unit, right? So, and so it, this rule applies to qualified business units that have a different functional currency than that of the owner. What briefly is a qualified business unit? Because we could probably spend the whole podcast just talking about what a QBU is. And sure, and what it's trying to capture is the idea that it doesn't have to be a separate juridical entity. Um, in our U.S. system, we have this concept of being able to check the box and treat a juridical entity as just not regarded as a separate entity from its owner. It doesn't have to be that. It is any grouping of activities that maintains a separate books and records that contains all of the activities or aspects necessary to produce the profit of the business. And under, let's say, the current version of regulations that we're talking about, it has to be a group of activities that are an active trader business. And so in the real world, that can look anything like a separate legal entity that has made an election that it's not separate from its owner, from a U.S. tax perspective, all the way to I can just have multiple what businesses refer to as P&Ls. Right that are groupings of activities, and those could rise to the level of being a separate qualified business unit. And so I think, you know, generally we think of them as branches because that infers that there's some level of activity. But technically, this applies to QBUs. And sometimes, to your point, maybe there'll be a disregarded entity within a structure where there's really no activities, and maybe that would not rise to the level of a, of a QBU, for example. And this is a great segue when we talk about the tortured history of these rules. That answer, too, has changed over time. All right, so let's get into this tortured history and, again, kind of a brief history of time, so to speak. So these, nine, these 987 regulations, the first set of regulations, so it came in the statute as part, I think, effective in 87, right? It's part of the 86 Act. Um, and the very first set of regulations were in 1991. I will admit I was a sophomore in high school at the time. And then there were regs that came out in 2006, and then 2016, and then 2019, and then 2023. What, what, what is, give us a little bit of the history. What, is the, what does all this mean, Rebecca? <laughs> sure, and I was a freshman in high school in 91, right. so context. <laughs> so the 91 regs were intended, I would say fundamentally, to, they were fairly detailed, but still manageable in length. They were intended to come up with a way of accounting for this translational gain or loss that was roughly based on U.S. gap principles. So they started from the premise, the gap analog to what we talk about when we talk about branch transactions is the cumulative translation account or CTA. And they started from the premise of what your CTA account is looking to measure is it takes your earnings or what we would think of as your taxable income calculation. They compute that based on a yearly average rate. And then for the assets of the branch, they basically, your CTA account will remeasure it annually. But the idea is that those are also producing foreign currency gain or loss that is taken into account. That's kind of the capital of the pool. Um, that's pool calculated on a pooled basis. And if you make a distribution out of a branch, they would say that your cumulative, unrealized, translational foreign currency gain or loss that gets recognized when you make a remittance is going to be based on, if you will, a blended average of all of those items compared to the percentage of the branch that you're remitting. Um, and so there were nice things about that. It was relatively gap conforming, although not identical. Mm -hmm. It was somewhat easy to calculate based on information that companies had available. Um, by looking to a remittance-based accounting methodology, you had some ability to control the tax attribute. Now, in the real world, people know that 
the business is going to control oftentimes when you're making a distribution right. rather than tax. But at least it was event-based rather than just being a remeasurement item. Um, and so that was the state of affairs up until about 2000 when the IRS and Treasury issued a notice because they became aware that this methodology, which creates foreign currency gain or loss on things like depreciable assets, trucks, sort of assets that themselves don't vary based on the changes in foreign currency, what they really vary on, like they, a truck would be a truck no matter where you put it in the world. Right. But your choice of where you put it in the world is now creating foreign currency exposure. Um, in some cases that might create large foreign currency losses that taxpayers were triggering through making remittances or terminating those branches, and that was of concern. And the IRS and Treasury put taxpayers on notice that they were going to issue subsequent guidance that they believed would address the proper tax accounting for those transactions, as well as they flagged other areas of concern, like, oh, if you have a branch that borrows money and buys stock, that doesn't really feel like it should have this kind of foreign currency gain or loss. We're trying to get at where you really run an operating business in the jurisdiction. And that brings you to 2006. So six years after that notice, they published proposed regulations and proposed an all new methodology. And they said the world is divided into things that produce foreign currency gain or loss and things that don't. And so the analog to this is our, and I can say code sections freely now. Oh yeah, you can do whatever I go want. For it. So, the analog is our Section 988 rules for transactional gain or loss, a foreign currency denominated loan, an account payable, account receivable. They said, look, if those items in the hands of the owner would create foreign currency gain or loss in the hands of a branch when they're in the functional currency of that branch, they should be remeasured and they should produce foreign currency gain or loss that's picked up when a remittance is made. And then everything else, my truck, my depreciable asset, those should all be held at historic cost. Mm -hmm. So that when you make a distribution out of the branch, the only foreign currency that gain or loss that you're picking up is from items of taxable income deduction gain or loss, so P&L earnings, mm -hmm. or it's coming out of things that would have been foreign currency gain or loss had you not put them at the branch, had they been at the home office. And there were a lot of comments submitted on the 2006 proposed mm -hmm. regs. Um, and the main areas of comments were first around administrability, this doesn't match what, what folks are doing for any of the generally accepted accounting principles in most jurisdictions. So you have to do standalone tax calculations, asking for different data sets that might not be readily available. Effectively required a whole new set of books. A whole new set of books. Like your tax, oh my God, the number of sets of books we're up to at this point right. is wild. Um, and then also there were these points around kind of policy-based is this really what the statute was intending to get at? So legislative history of the statute was saying, look, we have corporations and we only pick up foreign currency gain or losses on those when they make distributions and out of things that have been previously taxed, mm -hmm. your previously taxed earnings and profits, your PTAP. And then we have things that you hold directly where you have transactional gain or loss and these branch rules were kind of intended to be in the middle. But the version of the 06 regs calculation, which is referred to as the foreign exchange, exposure, pool, or FEEP right. method. Um, that was intended to be kind of, is closer to the 988 transactional end of the swimming pool, if you will, than it is like the way we account for corporations. And so there was a lot of policy comments on that. Um, those comments were taken into account, fully reflected upon, and with minimal changes, the IRS and Treasury finalized those regulations in 2016. 
So 10 years later. 10 years, because they had to really think and take into account all the comments. A lot of comments. Right. And they did make changes. They they made some changes around how partnerships were treated. They did make some adjustments to the calculation. But largely, they stayed with this baseline concept that the FEEP method, this transactional equivalent method, should be the baseline method. Finalized the regs in 16, deferred their effective date. Because to create a whole new set of tax books and records solely for this purpose takes time. Mm-hmm. And those regulations then were subsequently deferred by the Trump administration because of their observations around them having significant impact. They had an executive order that asked Treasury to look back at a bunch of regs. These were one of them. So they've been serially deferred until now. So meanwhile, 2019, there were, as part of these 2016 regs, and and going back even further, anti-deferral, or there were deferral regulations that were dealing with situations where um, you transfer a branch, you sell it intercompany in a di- in a regarded transaction. You could, you know, move it around because of check the box reorganizations or other transactions, and there were concerns about whether that could be used as a tool to inappropriately accelerate 987 losses because nobody's inappropriately accelerating gains. If you accelerate a gain, I think IRS and Treasury view that as always appropriate. Mm-hmm. And so they wrote rules that deferred the recognition of gains and losses on those kinds of deferral transactions. They're very detailed, but the takeaway is that they were looking to say, if you still have the QBU, if you still have that branch immediately after the transaction, we're going to defer the recognition of gain or loss. So the way I think about 987, Rebecca, and we'll dive into what these new regs say, but that generally Congress was concerned if you have a home office, a corporation or taxpayer that operates in branch form and another currency, well, as that branch earns income, it is going to be subject to immediate taxation at the home office. And there are specific rules about how that is translated on the average exchange rate to include that income largely at the home office. But the issue is, is that as that income is earned, the cash, for example, isn't, or other assets are not always transferred back to that home mm-hmm. office. And to the extent there is a delta between when the income is earned or maybe even when assets were contributed to the branch and when those assets or the cash is distributed to the home office, there could be foreign exchange gain or loss. And that's really what 987 is intended to tax is that foreign exchange gain or loss between when the income was recognized or when assets were contributed and then when that those assets were are ultimately distributed or when the branch goes away or the branch is, is terminated. And I certainly think there were, and I remember it was a long time ago in my career <laughs> back in 2006 um, and even before then, where because of the nature of the regulations, taxpayers had a lot of flexibility if there was big movements in foreign exchange gain or loss, either through a termination or some form of remittance is what they refer to as a, as a distribution that would give taxpayers the opportunity to potentially trigger a big, and that it was generally an ordinary loss for taxpayers. And so you can understand that Treasury and the IRS were concerned with this. And I think what we'll get into, there's been a whole lot of layers of rules that have been brought in to try to more reflect the economic reality, but also prevent taxpayers from effectively being able to trigger losses kind of whenever they want if they still hold the assets. And I think that's a general theme that we see in the the tax code, and they're trying to be consistent with 987. 
All right, so let's get into the most recent regs now, because that's a lot of background, but I think it's really important, and there's just a tremendous amount of history behind these regs. I think they're fascinating. So on November 9th of 2023, Treasury and the IRS released proposed regs under Section 987 on the taxation of foreign currency translation gains or losses arising from QBUs that operate in a currency other than the currency of the owner. The 2023 proposed regs largely retain the methodology of the 216 final regs that we discussed, but not yet effective Section 987 regulations, as you explained. So let's get into these newest regulations. Rebecca, what do they say generally? All right, 250 some odd pages of fun. Yeah. So their baseline is- This is is some dense stuff. It is. Just like, we're gonna stay at a high level, but- This is the hardest stuff that I navigate through. Like this reg package may be the most difficult thing that I've had to digest and try to- Is that right? Yeah, yeah, for real. with the digital assets stuff? Oh, unequivocally. That stuff's hard. This has been really, really challenging and I'm still learning. I mean, we're still in early days, so. I feel the same way about the Pillar 2 stuff that I've been working (laughs) on. So it's great at this point of our careers that we're still challenged. Absolutely. Keeps the brain cells like growing. Exactly. Exactly. So what they do fundamentally is they stick with that 2016 version, like their baseline policy is that going to the very simplified uh, example you use, if I contribute cash to a branch, it holds on to the cash for a period of time and I get it back out, that delta, when it's on cash, that should have foreign currency gain or loss on it. If I contribute a truck and the truck sits there in the branch for a while and I get back a truck, a truck shouldn't have foreign currency gain or loss on it. So they give taxpayers an election, a really significant election. So if you picture the period of time that's passed since 2016 and certainly even the comments going back to 2006, taxpayers and folks commenting on the regs have requested the ability to use something that looks more like their book accounting. And so by an election that's referred to as the current rate election, Mm -hmm. they intend to give taxpayers an election to use a methodology that looks a lot like the 1991 regulations or achieves a result that is quite similar. And that means that it, it is intended to achieve a result that's quite similar to a U.S. GAAP kind of CTA type mm-hmm. accounting. And so if you make this election, you translate your taxable income based on the average rate for the year, and you have essentially all of the assets in the branch are treated what the regs call a marked item, Mm -hmm. they all produce foreign currency gain or loss. And you remeasure them every year at the spot rate at the end of the year, which is kind of similar to what you do for US GAAP, and that becomes part of your 987 pool. And with this election, they give and they take away. (laughs) And we'll get into it in more detail, but the idea is that they said, you can have this methodology that we were concerned about. We published a notice, we talk about in the preamble to multiple sets of regs, but to address our concerns, we're gonna put limitations on your ability to use losses. And that is the, if you will, those are the bumpers they put around being able to use this effort, this uh, methodology that is intended to be more administrable, but can have the potential to create a multiplier effect on the amount of foreign currency gain or loss that you can trigger. The other election they give taxpayers is this annual recognition election. The older version of it was called the deemed remittance election. Mm -hmm. That's what you saw in like the 2006 and 2016 regs. And they say, look, we're gonna give you the election to pick up your foreign currency gain or loss on an annual basis rather than wait for remittances. And frankly, I was just having a chat with a group of folks about have we ever seen anyone actually want to utilize this election, which has been offered in various forms Mm -hmm. for the better part of, you know, 
17 yeah. years. No, um, <laughs> but the calculus under these regs is different. The calculus under these regs where I'm gonna have loss deferral rules that get called off if I have an annual um, inclusion election, fundamentally annual recognition election. And if I'm making this current rate election where losses can be somewhat materially deferred, this might become an attractive option. The other reason that this, uh, this election might be interesting is the 2006 regulations excluded from their scope. Banks, insurance companies, RICs, REITs, and then wrote special rules for partnerships and S-Corps. Mm -hmm. And they finalized keeping all of those entities out of scope. The regulations are now proposed to include all of those entities. And so if I'm, for example, a bank who otherwise uses a mark-to-market method of accounting, using an annual recognition methodology for my branches may actually be fairly in line with my mark-to-market method, which is triggering annual recognition on all my other items. So the calculus is a little bit different, and I think it's early days. Folks might find it more appealing today. And frankly, I have no idea how this interacts with Camp T or Pillar 2 or all the other things that having material deferrals and book tax differences in the U.S. tax system might be meaningful and unattractive in a way that wasn't previously. Right. I, I think what, you know one of the really big news items out of this, to your point, is the banks and insurance companies, which, I mean, particularly banks, operate in a lot of branches and I think had generally kind of car- you know, just assumed that they were carved out from having to deal with 987 and... You know, for those in that in the financial services industry, now it's time to pay attention again, or particularly those particular industries to pay attention again to 987, which can be a considerable amount of work uh, for taxpayers in those particular areas. Um, you had mentioned that generally, kind of goes back to the 91 rules that applies to kind of all the assets. What about um, partnership interest and stock? So this is fun stuff. I mean, fun. Yeah. yeah. speaking. Yeah. So. For us. (laughs) My fun. So I'll take it in two pieces. So 2006, 2016, and continuing that trend, they start with the premise that, like in the example that they expressed concern about, stock is not an asset of a QBU. So if you have an operating business and then they also own stock and subsidiaries, that stock and subsidiaries is not an asset of the QBU. If you borrowed money to buy that stock, the, the liability also is not properly booked to the books of the QBU. And I mentioned, and I glossed over it, the idea of, I keep saying active trader business and saying that like that's a definition that matters. That definition changed as part of the 06 regs then finalized in 16, because it used to be under 989 that a qualified business unit was defined to be per se a partnership. You could have a corporation and that corporation could have just a group of activities entered into for profit like a mutual fund or a RIC owning a portfolio that's managed in the euro, and they could treat that as a separate qualified business unit. And the regulations for 987 purposes tighten that up substantially, and they say, nope, it's got to be an active trader business, which means that that's why stock doesn't belong there, the liability to buy stock doesn't belong there, owning a partnership doesn't belong there, belongs at the home office, because those are all inherently investment activities because you just own the stock and subs. The partnership uh, rules are really long. Yeah, the partner. We'll come back maybe. You just should bring a sub K person. Yeah, to talk like about I don't want to get too deep into those. Um, but let's so let's then go into the loss deferral rules because this is obviously something that Treasury has been very focused on 
over the whole duration. So where have we landed now with respect to potential 987 losses? So I'll do it in a couple of categories. So the first category is we have these current final regulations under Dash 12 that defer gains and losses or just losses in certain circumstances. And the basic results under those rules are preserved in proposed Dash 12 with a lot of terminology changes. So the proposed Dash 12 deferral rules look different or substantively similar. So that means mm -hmm. if I move around a QBU within my foreign ownership structure, so I reorganize it, I transfer it, I sell it, those transactions are still gonna defer the recognition of 987 gains and losses. A deferred 987 gain is referred to as net unrecognized 987 gain. A deferred 987 loss is now called a suspended loss. Mm -hmm and that definition has meaning elsewhere in the 987 regs. They also, and by the way, just fun fact, because people forget this, when you make an outbound transfer of a QBU, like all other kind of outbound transfers, 987 gain is triggered, losses are deferred. They become right. suspended losses. They also add a brand new rule that if I have a QBU that I liquidate, like I liquidate its owner inbound. So you'd be carrying over an unrealized 987 possibly loss and bring it into the US. They just disallow that loss. Mm -hmm. That's so a we, big trap. Things to watch out for when you're doing otherwise benign planning, reorganizations, making acquisitions right. and integration. And then we have this whole new category, loss to the extent of gain. And this is their solution to, I have too much 9A7 loss or gain that's created by this current rate election or by the old 91 reg method. And they say, we'll let you have that outsized loss, for example, but only to the extent that the owner of the QBU has gain in the same grouping in the same year. So for example, if I have 9A7 gain or loss, I have loss that's treated as tested loss. I have to have 987 gain in that same owner, i.e. the CFC, that is tested income. Mm -hmm. Same thing for 904 grouping, if you're, if you're directly in the US, or with respect to the way your um, gains and losses are treated. And so this really, in a really different way, couples up the 987 gain or loss and all of the sourcing attributes that come with it. Because under current law, if I have a 987 loss that's ordinary in character, if I trigger it in the US, it's just an ordinary foreign currency loss. And I take it against any other ordinary income. And so when you're doing this loss to the extent of gain rule, it's done at the own, the, what I'll refer to as the ownership level, right? So if we have a US consolidated group, that is under the regs treated as one owner. Right. If we have, or you can correct me if where I go wrong here, because um, these regs are highly complicated. So if we've got a consolidated group and we've got multiple QBUs underneath that, do those get aggravated, aggregated compared to what about at the CFC level? Does that have to be done on an individual CFC when we when we think about this uh, what aggregation rule, this loss to the extent of gain? Yeah, and and it reads currently because it focuses on the owner, like owner means owner, like mm -hmm. the juridical entity that owns right. the entity. And we've got very limited guidance on let's say U.S. consolidated groups. We actually have a we'll talk about later a brand new consolidated group right. But like the general rule is the owner is the legal entity that owns the branch, which 
I think if that's the way both it's drafted and what is intended can be fairly limiting, particularly, for example, in a U.S. consolidated group that really ought to be treated like one owner. Mm -hmm. And then similarly in the world of CFCs, it's tested at the CFC level, that is the owner. And that begs these questions about, is that the right place to test, particularly in the world of like tested income, tested loss, that's computed more broadly. All right, so let, let's talk about then how this potential 987 gain or loss is treated, whether it's in the U.S. group or at one of the foreign subsidiaries of a U.S. group or the controlled foreign corporations. How, how do those rules work in general? And this can get complicated real quickly because they now make reference to our interest expense apportionment rules. But. Which I candidly don't know. Okay. So that, that keeps it easy for me because okay. I fell in front. But like the way that it, let's talk source. I'm your source. friend on that one. Exactly. We're not going to get too deep on that, but keep going. Source and character. Right. So from a sourcing standpoint, and this has been the matter of, I would say, much controversy and these regs are looking to put to bed, same way earlier ones did. 987 gain or loss is sourced by looking to how the assets of the QBU are treated for interest apportionment purposes. So sending you to those 861-9T regs, and particularly 9TG for those who are keeping score. So you look to the income that's produced, you look to the treatment of the assets for interest apportionment, in that QBU. And so I got a call, a question on a call yesterday and they said, so I've got a, got a CFC. It owns 20 branches in all different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So when I have 987 gain or loss from one, you are looking at the assets of that QBU. I don't get to blend it across my other QBUs. Yes. Okay. Assets of that QBU. For purposes of determining how that source and character is treated. Absolutely. Now, character is like a kind of a funky term because like character in the hands of a U.S. person, this is still ordinary gain or loss treated as foreign currency gain or loss. It just, whether it's U.S. source or foreign source, where it goes from a 904 grouping standpoint is determined then based on the assets. The, in the hands of a CFC kind of the same rule. So if you look at the way in which interest expense would be allocated and apportioned, that's gonna tell you which category of sub F this goes to. And the regulations are very clear to say that you don't get the benefit of the so-called business needs exception, which is our general out for foreign currency gain or loss, where you have the ability to not treat it as passive income and to kind of match it up with the type of income to which it relates. Because I think the 987 rules think they are doing that by virtue of using this um, analog to the expense apportionment rules. Yeah. So um, I, the way I explain this very high level is that if there's interest expense that is at the CFC level and the CFC has some just regular income, let's say, maybe it has and, and that it's guilty income. Um, and then let's assume that it's got some other subpart F income. So it's regular income, a portion of that is gonna be sub, well, it's all gonna be subject to tax, and then you get a deduction for guilty, and then maybe it's got some other income that's sub F. Well, there are specific rules that tell taxpayers how they allocate interest expense against these different types of income, guilty or sub F. Yep. And so because that insanely complicated architecture has been in place for decades, as Treasury looks to figure out when they're potentially allocating income, 
they often reference these interest expense apportionment rules. And that's really what they borrowed from here in, from a 987 perspective. And that you look at the same rules for 987, if there's 987 gain or loss to figure out, well, should that 987 gain or loss be guilty? Should it be subpart F? Should it be, you know, potentially reduce something else, some other category of, of income? And then there are also, which we're not going to get into implications from a foreign tax credit perspective. And my only plug for that is that I'm sure you've had folks on talking about the foreign tax credit regs that came out earlier this year. There are specific branch rules there as well. And the intention of this package was to make those rules harmonious with our 987 rules so that the 987 gain or loss goes in the same place that the branch gains and losses go from a foreign tax credit standpoint. So there are a number of special rules. We're not going to get into the partnership stuff. Uh, your point is well taken. We can bring one of our uh, subchapter K partnership specialists because it gets real, it gets complicated real quickly. But maybe we'll just touch on the one that I found particularly interesting related to consolidated groups and deemed transactions. Then we'll close with the effective date of the new regs. But can you tell us just a little bit about this deemed transaction? Because I think that's also a potential trap for the unwary. Sure. And so the baseline fact pattern, I like an easy example. Uh, imagine you have two U.S. corporations, they're brother, sister, under a common owner, and they're part of the same U.S. consolidated group, which means they're a single filer for U.S. tax purposes. And one of those U.S. corps owns a euro branch, and the other U.S. corp lends euros to that branch. And so what we see for, I'm going to do gap, or like basic balance sheet accounting. The entity, the U.S. corp that lent euros to the branch sees a, a foreign currency loan on its balance sheet. It has an asset and it's gonna experience foreign currency gain or loss and US GAAP and most GAAP principles across the globe would see foreign currency gain or loss associated with that transaction. The other US corporation that owns the branch is gonna see some kind of translational branch gain or loss as there are distributions on the branch. Right. These regs change that. They say, what we're gonna say happened is like US Corp 1 lent to US Corp 2 and US Corp 2 contributed to its branch. And the, the underpinnings actually make some sense and they tie back to something you said earlier. If our US group is treated on a consolidated group member like they are branches or divisions of a single corporation, that transaction between the two members ought to essentially eliminate consolidation and all we see that's outside the group is the contribution to the branch. So that's what it's looking to do but because it decouples with what we see from a balance sheet standpoint, the transactions we see certainly for U.S. GAAP, mm -hmm. it's going to create some relatively meaningful, not just GAAP tax differences where I have the ability that my accounting income may be higher or lower than my taxable income, but also when you're a corporate treasurer and you're thinking about managing the risk that you see from a balance sheet standpoint, a treasurer will see a different set of exposures than we see for tax, which means I might be hedging things that we don't see for tax, and it's going to create some downstream consequences that at best are going to require a lot of education. Yeah, and I've learned that from working with you over the last you know, 25 plus years, <laughs> Rebecca, is that there is a, a potential trap for treasurers, and particularly that are very focused on hedging from a financial accounting perspective, and what may be a good hedge from a financial accounting perspective 
may not be a good hedge from a, a tax perspective and there can be exposure there. And that um, investment hedges are one of those examples where that can be potential traps. And I'm just going to put this one in that category. And so it's important for tax professionals um, and, and those taxpayers to work with their treasurers and understand that this, this is a change and uh, could create some potential tax exposure where there otherwise may not be book exposure. So let's move now in closure here to the effective dates of these new regs. And because this has always been very fascinating with proposed regs, when we had final regs with the delayed effective date, and whether taxpayers could rely on some of these old prior regulations, if those are reasonable methods, how generally do the effective dates work for this? So Doug, I've got a surprise for you. We had a reg a correction drop this morning. So this is like literally- Hot off the press. Hot off the press. Okay. So. The effective date of these regulations, starting point, they're proposed to be effective for taxable years beginning on or after December 31st, 24. So if you're a calendar year taxpayer, the first year they'd apply to is 1125. So far so good, right? Mm -hmm. The regulations also apply, they're proposed to apply, and I say proposed because it's, it's a proposed retroactive effective date for branch terminations occurring on or after November 9th, 2023, i.e. the date on which these regulations were early dropped. So if I stop there, I say, okay, great. But I also have these like final regs that have been sitting out there since right. 2016 that every year around this time, IRS and Treasury defer via notice. Um, the preamble as originally dropped in the regulations kind of had all this language about you know, these regulations are modifying provisions in the 2016 regs. And so we, you know, anticipate the taxpayers can rely on these proposed regulations to not have to apply the 2016 regulations for the calendar year 24. Great. Adopting proposed regulations has massive knock-on tax consequences. Right. Like if you think any of your branch gain or loss was going to be recognized after 1125, you have to start thinking about, do those future attributes need to be accounted for under the proposed regulations if I have to early rely on the proposed regulations to not, to not apply these 2016 regs that have been hanging out there for that like one year interim period. Um, that feedback has been passed along to folks at IRS and Treasury, formally and informally. And so today, they dropped a correction to the effective date provisions and preamble language that says, look, taxpayers can choose to rely solely on the effective date sections. So I don't have to early adopt any other provision in the regulations to rely on the effective date sections that say that the 2016 regulations don't apply. Okay. And these new regulations won't apply until 2025. And to be entitled to rely on that, you have to agree to apply those regulations, the proposed regs, to any branch termination that took place after November 9th. Okay. And so this has knock-on consequences for if I terminated a branch, say, as people have, like on November 10th. Yeah. You're agreeing that if there were, for example, loss on that transaction, you might have to defer that loss. And if there's gain on that transaction, you might have to pay tax on that gain. And so you have to work through the consequences. Bigger picture, zooming out, your ability and what happens on this transition date is really interesting. You carry your baggage with you forever. Mm -hmm. Kind of a more holistic mm -hmm. statement. 
If you have unrealized 987 gain or loss as of the transition date, so if your calendar year that's 1231-24, you have to calculate what your unrealized 987 gain or loss is, and that carries forward into the new method. All your branches are treated as if they were formed 1125. It's like you distributed all your assets and formed all new branches. But that unrealized item carries forward subject to the loss to the extent of gain rule and other recognition rules. And so knowing what your attribute is, really knowing what it is, as of 1231-24 matters. And they basically give you two choices that aren't really choices. They say, if you were using an eligible method, the basically any of the proposed regulations mm -hmm. methods, and using it consistently for the history of the branches, then you can take that unrealized item and bring it into as an unrealized item into the new method. If you were using earnings only, a method we haven't talked about, right. which is basically just you pick up the foreign currency gain or loss associated with your earnings, but you don't do anything with your capital, you hold it at historic rate, it's kind of a hybrid between the two methods mm -hmm. we have talked about. They say if you've done that and done it consistently, two things happen. You can bring your baggage with you, but you have to compute the unrealized foreign currency gain or loss on capital. So the difference between your historic basis in all your assets and the spot rate on the data transition, which was a big surprise for folks who maybe have never thought too deeply about 987. Right. Because they were like, I don't worry about capital. I'm just taking into account foreign currency gains and losses on earnings. So that's a big surprise. And that attribute may surprise you. In a dropping rate environment, you might have unrealized 987 gains or losses as of transition that you didn't realize you had. And if you weren't on an eligible method, you have to go back and compute your unrealized 987 gain or loss on the FEEP method. Right. Going back to your earliest open year, for example, if that's going to be your default. And so this becomes a really interesting, I'm not going to say choice, because you've done what you've done, mm -hmm. really scrubbing your prior methods and getting comfortable to what degree they were eligible methods is the undertaking between now and the date on which you will transition onto the regs. Yeah, and then the other point that you made earlier is, well, what's the downstream consequences of this? So, you know, we're not going to get in, not going to get into the financial accounting aspects, but does a deferred tax asset or deferred tax liability need to be booked related to this potential historical exposure? If so, what are the consequences for purposes of the corporate alternative minimum tax? And then, of course, also from a pillar two perspective, because those deferreds need to be valued and then those need to effectively come into your covered tax calculation and could potentially significantly impact your, um, your pillar two global minimum tax calculation. And so there are these downstream consequences that taxpayers need to be aware. And, and I know that's something that our kind of national office um, financial accounting folks are really thinking hard about because these are only proposed regs and right. it is possible that they would never be finalized. But the obligation even to rely on pieces of them to defer the currently effective final regs um, is significant. And so more to come on that. Um, and I'd say the last thing I'd highlight if folks, because the single biggest conversation I have with folks is like, well, what do I do now? Yeah. I've got pillar two, I've got year end planning, I've got all these other things that I'm dealing with. The comment period on these regs runs until February 12th. Of so, 2024. Of 2024. So it's a 90-day comment period, which is longer than the average comment period. And it's really intended to give taxpayers the opportunity to get in there and comment, like, how will, are these administrable? What changes need to get made? Where do they need to think about additional alterations or elections? Because 
every message we've heard out of IRS and Treasury is that they are extremely serious about finalizing these in 24. They mean it this time. This time, <laughs> they mean it. So we'll see before our retirements if we actually get a final, final set of 987 regs. When we do, you're going to come back on the cross-border tax talks and tell us about it. Absolutely. I am skeptical, but I'm from the state of Missouri, which is the show me state. Uh, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue to see how this progresses. Rebecca, always great having you on. And you do an amazing job going through some really complex stuff and making it uh, at least understandable. I'm not going to say easy to understand, <laughs> but how about understandable? So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Rebecca Lee, International Tax Partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.